have so many of you join us this afternoon. My name is Gary Harvat. I'm the Vice President of Client Success, and we appreciate you taking part of your Friday to join us for what we hope to be a very informative webinar on some interesting topics that we can provide some updates and some actual real-life interactions that we had with our clients, and we felt compelled to uh, bring this to you and update you on um, some of the things that we've seen going on uh, with the cost data collection process, as well as the No Surprises Act. Um, I'm sure all of you joining us today have heard about both of these, and uh, QMC has been deeply involved with, with both and helping our clients um, through these processes. Some are a little cha more challenging than others. Uh, joining me today is my panel of experts. Uh, so uh, with us today is Ed Morasco. Ed's our Vice President of Business Development, and as many of you know, Ed has a long and storied history in the air medical market, and he's going to be bringing us a lot of information about the No Surprises Act. Uh, also, our Vice President of Remote Client Operations, Heidi Campbell. Heidi has been deeply involved uh, from the air side with the uh, NSA and the uh, Independent Dispute Resolution Process, or the IDR. Um, that has had a significant amount of challenges uh, with that, and we wanted to make sure each of you are aware. Uh, we're also, when we're talking about NSA in the second part of the program, we're also going to talk about what we perceive, uh, where this is headed as far as with the ground ambulance services. Um, we feel that there's a great opportunity for this to occur. Right now, it's just happening uh, with our market on the air side. And then to start today's program, uh, we have uh, Chuck Humphrey, who's retired from our compliance department, but Chuck has graciously agreed uh, to come in and and uh, talk to us about updates on the cost data collection program. Um, I'll cover this now for everybody uh, because I know if I don't bring it up, Chuck will. Chuck, his team has recently won the bowling championship uh, for his area. So I am certain it would come up at some point. So I thought I'd mention it here on set of our meeting. But uh, nonetheless, uh, Chuck's enjoying retired life and we're glad to have him here today. So I'm going to uh, turn this over to start. Uh, to Chuck, and I will tell you that as we go through today's program, uh, we encourage questions. Actually, some of you have already sent me a few questions, so that's great, but we encourage questions. This is a webinar format, which means uh, you can see us, and on behalf Chuck and, of Chuck and Ed, I apologize for that, um, but um, uh, we can't see you, but it is a two-way street. If you do have questions, please please ask them. The only foolish question is the one that does go unasked. Um, go to the bottom of your video screen. You'll see a little button there that says Q&A. Type your question in. I will see it. I'm your moderator. I will pose that to the panel. And uh, if um, we don't know the answer, we will surely get it for you. I will also tell you, we do have a few slides with today's presentation. Um, we can mail the, the PDF version out to you at the end. And also, there's a few links. Uh, if you look at the chat feature, there's a couple links uh, that may be valuable to you as far as for additional information. But again, if you do have questions, please use the Q&A button and not the chat button because we would it's going to work easier for us. Uh, so uh, with that, I'm going to start with the cost data information. Again, thank you for so many of you joining us. I see there's still a few filing in. We have folks from both the air and the ground side uh, from all across the country. I've, I see Maine, Texas, Arizona, 
Washington State on here already. So uh, thank you for joining us. Good morning to some of you. Good afternoon to the, to the remainder of you. So um, it's, uh, it's great to have you. We appreciate We enjoy doing these things for you. Uh, we find that we did a lot of these during COVID uh, and they worked out really very well. So we hope again, you find today's program helpful and informative. So as we all know, the cost data uh, survey, CMS cost data survey is well underway. Some of you actually uh, are probably being getting ready to report here this month in the month of May, for those of you that had your number drawn earlier. And for those of you that may not be aware of what it's all about and how you're notified and how things are going on, hopefully uh, we can clarify that for you. So without any further ado, I'm gonna turn it over uh, to, to Chuck and to give you an update. And again, questions are welcome at any time, so don't be backward. Chuck, thanks for joining us, we appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to be back together with all of you. And I see some names in the attendee list that I recognize. So hi, everyone. Uh, yes, I have been enjoying retirement. Yes, my bowling game is um, abysmal at best. Uh, so, um, you know, when I was a young guy, I did a lot better, but I'm not as young as I used to be. So behind me is the um, uh, my memoir to the one and only Super Bowl championship of the Philadelphia Eagles. We're going to win again this year. So I just want to put everybody on notice that um, that come January, I'll be celebrating. All right. So look, uh, enough with that. Uh, let's talk about the Ground Ambulance Data Collection System, or GADCS. So for those of you that um, may not know, and I hope you all do by now, but look, this thing kind of snuck up on us. And, and here's the reason why. We knew it was coming. It was supposed to be four years in length, 2020 through 2024. Uh, and each year, 25% of all of you, all ambulances that build Medicare would be uh, asked to submit their collection uh, data. And then, <laughs> then came COVID and it just really put the brakes on this whole thing. And in response to that, um, it was delayed and then they did catch up. And so how CMS decided to do the catch up was to take the four years take two years and combine them into one reporting period, take two years and combining into the next reporting period. So um, many of you may have uh, received your notice about a year ago that you were in year one and two to be selected. Now, how were you selected? Well, selected selection came by your national provider identifier. So if you build Medicare and you used an NPI, which is kind of like your your big uh, billing social security number, I guess it's the best way that I can put it, um, then you were chosen. That's a key point to remember because some of your organizations, uh, you may have multiple provider numbers under one NPI. You're reporting under an NPI. I wanna make that clear. We'll talk about that as we go. And what you'll be uh, providing is your cost, revenue, utilization, and other miscellaneous information. So remember how this all began. Um, for many years, we have been getting this add-on payments to the Medicare fee schedule. And by the way, this is only for ground. I know some of you here are air-related. If you have a ground component, you will be chosen. But what you're going to be reporting are your ground costs. And we'll get into that a little more. But I want to make sure that I qualify this because if you're listening, um, you may think, well, I have to do all of it. And, and it's, it's, it's ground related, but we'll move on from here. 
So uh, what you're doing basically is throughout a one-year period, you're collecting all the information of all your costs, all your revenue incoming, uh, your utilization, meaning you know how your trips are broken down by what service levels, where you're responding to, your response times, and all of that is going to be reported in the end by CMS to MedPAC. And MedPAC is the Medicare Payment Advisory Committee who will then prepare a report and send it on to Congress. Now, the idea behind this is basically Congress said this, we keep every year or so, every couple of years, extending these extra payments because we know we kind of didn't do the fee schedule very well. Surprise, surprise, we're only 20 some years into the Medicare fee schedule. And they're still catching up, all right? So it doesn't really surprise me at all. And it's one of the great things of being retired because I don't have to deal with that animal anymore, but no, not really. But regardless, um, what they said was once and for all, we need to know how much it's costing you to run because we keep giving you the stopgap, but we don't know that you really need it. Ha ha, that's a big joke. Uh, we all know that. But nonetheless, every other um, healthcare entity does a cost reporting, but ambulance. So it was our turn and it, it's not surprising. What we hope is, is this will paint the picture of exactly how underfunded we are, especially by Medicare and Medicaid. And I don't need to tell you guys, that is a reality. And we all know that you go out and you spend $600 on average, you'll run a call and you get three, $400 back. It doesn't take long to see that our balance sheets aren't going to tally. Okay. And many of you, unfortunately are experiencing that, but um, so we hope that this will finally show them just how underfunded we are and they will fix the Medicare fee schedule and not have to go after all these add-on payments every year, the rural and super rural urban bonuses, okay? So it's important that you report, but it's really important that you report because they also tied a penalty to this. And if you don't report in the next year, you're going to get 10% less Medicare dollars. Now, I don't know about your organization, uh, but I know the organization where I'm still a part of that's a lot of money and we can't afford to lose it. And none of you can either. So it's important that we do report it. And frankly, uh, I'm an advocate of finally giving them what they need and then they can't make an excuse for why they're not fixing what is broken. Okay, so again, random sampling, 25% of all the NPIs that are uh, were billed in uh, that previous year period. Now, as you're collecting all year long, and I, I do suggest, this is not something, folks, that you can wait and then at the last minute submit. You're going to have to collect throughout an entire year. And folks, I don't care if you're a big organization, small organization, if you let this go and then try to catch up, it will bury you, okay? Um, you absolutely need to collect it starting now. So if you were chosen in year one and year two, from the end of your reporting period, you had five months to report. So let's talk about that for a minute. They sent a letter out. By now, um, all of you on this call should have received the letter because all four-year notifications have been released as of about last November. If for some reason you didn't receive a letter, it could be that the information that's on file in the PECO system, the PECOS system, or what we call the Provider Enrollment Chain and Ownership System, isn't up to date. 
And so upon receiving that letter or upon that letter going out, you had basically a one month period from that point, from receipt of the letter to let them know what your reporting period was going to be. So you could choose a calendar year, which probably most of you did, or you could choose your fiscal. So some of you may have been done, you know, like you're doing your tax reporting, a July to June scenario, or I've heard of some being, you know, September to August or whatever the case may be, that you're telling them what's your collection period. Now, if you didn't receive the letter and you didn't tell them what your collection period was, it is going to default to a calendar year. So if you did not already tell them how you're going to report, you're on the hook for January to December. At the close of that period, beginning on January 1 of this year, the clock started ticking for those of you that were in year one and two to report by the end of May. So if you haven't even started yet, you have 19 days to quickly get it all together. And then at that period, if that isn't reported, they're going to send you a nice little note that says, we're going to take 10% of your Medicare money away. Now, I hope that doesn't catch any of you like a deer in headlights. If it does, quickly, you got to ramp up. For those of you that are chosen for year three and four, your reporting period has not started and will not start until January 1 of 2024. So you can take a breath. Anybody, it's a, and you say, well, how do I know I'm on the list? I didn't get the letter. I do have links in the webinar chat. There's two links for you. One of them is um, the page that covers all of this that CMS has set up. And I will tell you, it is very informative. The second link that I gave you is the overview or what they call the frequently asked questions, the FAQs. That is a very informative document and it's a dynamic document that they continue to build based on your questions. So I would review that. Also there is a PDF of the reporting tool that you will be using. Now, this is a strictly digital report. There is no paper report to this. You must log on and you must file a digital report. What this PDF is, is a compilation of all of the possible questions that you will need to answer for them. And the way this happens is once you start, you're gonna tell them the type of organization that you are, and it will then populate the questions to you. So if you're a, a volunteer organization, it's gonna give you questions about the nature of your organization. If you're a hospital-based organization, it will drill to that. If you are for-profit, it will give you certain questions. So the tool looks at what organization you are, the type of organization you are, and then starts feeding you, here's what you need to answer. But you can review what that is ahead of time by reviewing that PDF. And I do suggest that you pull that down and look at that because that will start putting your mindset in, what am I gonna have to collect? Again, though, your reporting period from the close of your period, you have five months, day one to the end of the fifth month in order to report so you are in compliance. So again, if you reported a July to June scenario, well, and obviously if you're in year three and four, you won't even begin reporting until mid-year next year. 
that's when you'll open up. All right. Uh, so when the time comes, you'll register for a user ID and a password in the CMS enterprise identity system, what's called the IDM system. And then you're going to have to pick two roles, two people or one person to fill both roles. One will be the person who's doing the data entry and reporting. And the other will be the person who is the certifier. Now, I'll caution you on this. The certifier person is actually responsible for all the validity of the data reported. So you want to choose carefully. If you have an admin person that's filling this out, you have to ask yourself, and this is just a rhetorical question, but do I want that person also verifying? Or should it be someone with a responsibility for your organization that's going to take a good look and review um, what information has been entered. I think it's great to have two sets of eyes, folks. I think that works best. The reporter and the certifier can be the same person. Uh, it, there's nothing wrong with that. However, it's probably a good idea that you do have more than one set of eyes on this. And 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 what I'd like to caution you is, um, is getting all the people involved in your organization together right up front. So I'm thinking about your administration, your accountants, and maybe that's an outside firm that you bring every in every year to do your tax uh, reporting, and they have no clue what this is, okay? You need to loop them in, your treasurer, um, if those of you that are municipal, city hall people, you know, your elected officials, your administrative officials, you know, the mayor's office, the fire chief's office, um, I would get them all in the loop. You may decide that you want to put a committee together to review and pull the data together. But, you know, this isn't something you do as an island. Smaller organizations, well, maybe you can maybe you can get away with that. But the, as you become a little larger and the larger organizations, I will suggest you have multiple people because you're going to have to collect info from a lot of sources. Your billing company, okay? Now, I will tell you the great thing about Quick Med Claims is, is already on our uh, QB system, there is an entire dashboard that has the information you'll need for the revenue part. But let me caution you, there are people that have questioned, well, can't you guys just do this? Can I just engage QMC to do it all? The answer to that is no. And it's not because we don't want to do it. It's simply because we don't have access to your cost data. You know, what you're spending for supplies and maintenance and your personnel and, and all of those things, uh, that is something we don't have. So what we have done at QMC is have provided you with the things we can control, and that is putting all the numbers together uh, on the dashboard for you to pull your revenue questions. And so we can help you with that. Your client success people, uh, people on Gary's team can certainly uh, help you with that. Other contractors, you know, um, and I will tell you that the government has um, told us that they estimate that it will be a about 20 hours, man hours to collect the info, give or take, and about three hours to submit. Now, does that mean that you need to sit down all in one sitting and submit? No. The answer to that is, is you can go in, do a section, save it, close it out, and go back. 
Maybe as you go in, you'll get a question fed to you that you didn't get all the information and you need to go back and do a little more digging. You can put it on hold. Once you open it up, you don't have to close it until you have all the information ready. So this is something you can gradually work on over that five-month period. But again, do not wait until that five-month reporting period comes because you have a whole year's worth of information to gather. Um, there are some other helpful tools on the GADCS webpage. One of those is for larger organizations. There are Excel templates for certain sections that require a lot of data that you can fill in and then submit those templates as part of your report. So for your larger, where you have a lot of data, you maybe don't wanna go in and enter all that one by one, you can use an Excel spreadsheet. So that's good as well for you to take, um, take a look at. Um, you may ask us, well, you, you know, we didn't do billing last year, we're brand new, or we ceased operations and we're not doing ground anymore, we're only doing air. Um, there are ways for you to just go in and say, I don't have to do the rest of this. And you can justify that. And it may be one simple question to ask, uh, to answer on the tool, but you must answer it. Even if you don't have data to report, you still have to answer that question. So I will uh, caution you on that. Uh, once you log into the reporting portal, the first questions will set the tone of the rest of your reporting. So make sure that you get those questions up front, define your organization, and then go from there. Now, what have I been hearing from the folks that I have dealt with all my career? Because we have, you know, I talk to people all the time and uh, still uh, because uh, graciously QMC has allowed me to stay connected and uh, work on some projects behind the scenes. I do talk with, uh, you know, uh, ambulance services, not only in my own area, but throughout the U.S., that have you know basically given me some feedback. Um, the big things that are difficult that you're going to have to spend time on are where your organizations aren't all ground. So let's say you're part of a fire company. You have to allocate the percentage of the resources that are strictly ground and separate them out from what the fire department is. There are some organizations that are police-oriented, your municipals, uh, you share dispatch resources. I mean, I could go on, we could spend an hour just on this, and we're not going to do that. My, my point to doing today up front here, because Heidi and Ed certainly have great information for you, is to make you aware. <clears throat> Excuse me, what I think concerned us the most, as Gary and I talked, as we started getting a few calls Hey, I'm hearing about this cost data collection thing. What is it? Whoa, you know, we are now in crunch time, folks. And if that's where you're at, awareness time, you need to put your antenna up and get this thing right away because it is now creeping up on you and you're going to have to uh, pull all that information very quick. There are some other resources. I will tell you, um, for those of you that are members of the American Ambulance Association, I'm sure you've already seen their wonderful resources. They've had some great uh, webinars. Uh, there is their tool called the Amber tool that is available. Now that is um, provided to members. And for non-members, you can purchase the use of that. I do know a few clients that have been smaller clients that have been granted grants 
from like SABIC uh, in order uh, to use that tool. And it's been a great resource. And basically what that tool does is it mirrored the reporting. So gradually you can enter the info into the AMBER tool and then transfer it over into the government's reporting tool. So that's great because you can work on it incrementally as time goes on. So there are a number of those types of resources uh, out there. You may have consulting people that you can uh, use uh, that that have done some of this. I, I know that uh, we work with a, a consulting company that has done a lot of work in helping clients as well. So there are some tools out there, but the the, the short answer is this, be aware now. The long answer is you're going to have to take some time to pull all this together. And, and, and where it gets sticky is, yeah, you know, there are, there are things like your response times. You have to give them from point of dispatch until arrival on the scene. You have to give them your primary and secondary response areas, all the zip codes where your first due and second due. Those organizations that are providing ALS chase, that'll be separate from your transport data. And you're going to have to pull that out. And it's the kind of stuff that you do every day and you don't think about, but now you're going to have to separate out because they're trying to, again, get a window into what makes you tick dollars and cents wise, certainly, but also what is EMS? This is really defining EMS for Congress, for the federal government, so they can make decisions moving forward about how best to support you. Um, I'm hoping that this does solve that, uh, because if it does, then all your effort will be greatly um, rewarded on the backside of this as they choose a funding model that represents truly what we need to operate uh, a robust EMS system across America. Um, you know, some of the comments that I've heard is, boy, uh, how do I take my fire station and tell them how much space is allocated towards the ambulance? We have three fire trucks and we have two ambulances. Do I have to go measure? Well, you can, but you can also, they, they're allowing for you to use some methodology to this. So they say, you know, if you have a thousand runs in a fire and EMS mixed and 500 of them are EMS, then 50% of your activity is ground ambulance related. So now you can take your 10,000 square foot building and say that 50% of that is allocated towards EMS. So now you're going to report that 5,000 square feet of your building is EMS. So they have allowed, but but once you choose that method, then you have to be consistent with that and use that percentage methodology and you can't mix and match it with the actual numbers. So there are things that uh, that will help you from there. Um, uh, Gary, I see some questions. Uh, I, I, Don writes, we're going to be reporting on our fiscal year, April 1 through March 20, uh, I think it's March 31st of 2024. I see your four reporting is due May 2024. Will ours be August 2024? So at the end of your period, uh, April through March, five months will start ticking April 1. So it'd be April, May, June, July. And yes, at the end of August would be the end of your uh, reporting requirement from there. Right. All right. A couple, couple more questions we had come in and come. Uh, some folks were nice enough to send us beforehand. Um, uh, we have, and I think this is going to actually cover a few questions of similar uh, type. Um, 
we're being asked, um, I'm new to the organization. How does CMS notify agencies they were chosen for reporting? And is there a way to check to see if my agency was in fact chosen? Yes. Yeah, so on the, um, the link that I gave you for the GADCS website has all four years. It is available in a spreadsheet. So you can pull that down. Um, if, you're, you're, if you know you weren't one and two, you want to pull three and four down, uh, which is uh, current uh, reporting period now, you can pull that down and then you can kind of massage the Excel to search for your organization, you know, you know, do a control F, or you can search by state, you can manipulate the, uh, the columns as you need to, to search for your organization. And I think, Gary, uh, your team even uh, developed um, kind of a client crosswalk that if they uh, contact their client success representative, they'll be able to look at the spreadsheet we prepared to pull that out. Yeah, absolutely. And Chuck, can you, um, uh, I'm being told that there's that well, those links aren't on the chat. So can you put those up again when you get a moment? No problem. Yeah, you betcha. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And also a couple more questions and then we're going to move on. Um, can you define what Medicare perceives as primary and secondary response areas? Yeah, this is a question that's tripped a lot of people up. In fact, uh, the uh, RAND Corporation, which was the nonprofit that developed the tool for the government under contract, uh, tweak this and work this. So your primary response area is the area and defined by zip codes where you are first due primary EMS. So that's where they're going to you know, activate your active 911, drop the tones and alert you that you are the responding first due. Your secondary would so be somewhere outside of that area where you're regularly called like in a mutual aid situation. Now that doesn't mean every single zip code like on an MCI, let's say. Let's say you're in a city and you go out to the burbs and you don't go to this place maybe once every now and then when you have a big call, okay? These would be areas where you're second due. And it could be that the same zip codes that you're reporting some of them for primary are also reported for secondary, uh, such as uh, I know my local um, area here because I live in more of a rural area. Our zip code for Berwick, Pennsylvania encompasses three or four different townships that surround our borough. And so I, you know, we would be reporting that second due area with the same zip code as the first due. Uh, so it, and it's, again, where you regularly are called, uh, you may have a mutual aid agreement with the neighboring ambulance and you're going over to help them out, city going into the township, you know, whatever the case may be. So that would be your, your first and second due uh, definitions. Great. And I take it within the links, Chuck, all the forms that they need are located there. Is that a safe assumption? That is correct. Yeah, it is a really well put together uh, website. The government has, the, I, I will tell you, you know, I, Heidi, Ed, Gary, we all have dealt with CMS over the years and we're very biased. And I could say a lot of things that probably are not PC for this, uh, for this presentation about that, but they have done this well. And I think part of that is, I've listened in on the webinars that the RAND Corporation have done, and their representatives are very knowledgeable. They're very open and receptive. The dialogue surrounding this has been very positive. And as such, they have uh, listened to the stakeholders and they have tweaked their information to include a lot of the, the standard questions that everyone is asking. So 
I really give them high marks for this because they've done this well. All right, I've got one more for you, Chuck, real quick here, buddy. Uh, we have three staff members who have other non-street roles within our organization. How do we list them when we report? Yeah, it's a great question. Always default to the primary ground role. So you're going to list them as the EMT, paramedic, uh, advanced uh, EMT, whatever their role is, list them as that. And then their other responsibilities, you'll be asked to populate other duties, but everyone's primary role is what they do on the street. Likewise, let's say you have a volunteer who now becomes a paid staff member. If they're a volunteer at the beginning of the year, they're going to remain a volunteer for your reporting. If they're an EMT at the beginning of the year, but they become a paramedic later in the year, you're still going to list their hours as an EMT. They want that consistency as where the year starts. Uh, so it's a great question. And this is where, you know, fire organizations, I'll go back to that, where you do have that uh, you know, one of your members that rides on the truck, but he's more fire than EMS. You're going to be reporting him as an EMS ground individual who also has fire duties, but you're always going to default to the, to the ground, uh, to the ground role that that person, either he or she plays. All right. One more. And then you folks can continue to ask questions. Uh, we will probably not pose them to Chuck but we will retain them and then we will communicate back to you. We have each of your email addresses. So if it doesn't get asked, we'll still get you an answer to your question. So um, with that, Chuck, I'm just gonna give you one more real quick and I think it's an easy one to answer. Hospital-based ground services are the administrative and facility costs baked in as well, including recruiting and retention cost efforts. Yeah, they want all of your costs, but the primary questions you're gonna be asked in the tool are going to be related to the ground role, then you're going to have to determine the number of hours and or costs by percentage that the administrative costs weigh in. Now, there is going to be a question, and, and put yourself in this mindset, for the NPI that I'm reporting, what are those costs? So let's say that you're under a, a hospital system umbrella, but your MPI for the ground ambulance has been chosen. They're going to ask for your total cost as it relates to that NPI. So think of not organization as a whole hospital system, but think of it as what are the costs as related to that carve out of that MPI that they are asking you to report. And for those of you that have multiple MPIs, you may, uh, by the way, report one MPI this year and report another MPI next year because each individual MPI will be chosen at random. And so that's another thing to consider. Retention and recruitment costs, absolutely. There is There are going to be questions related to that and they will populate accordingly. Uh, so Yes, and yes, uh, both of them will be part of it. Now, can I answer specifically how you answer that? No, and that's why I say there needs to be thoughtful discussion throughout the years you're collecting with the people that are in these other areas responsible for that uh, in order to carve out the percentages of costs 
that are attributed to ground ambulance. The other question that comes up, Gary, it's similar, is uh, dispatch, county dispatch. Well, if you don't pay anything for dispatch, they're not worried about what those costs are, okay? If your organization strictly is dispatched by a county entity, um, then that's not concern unless you're paying for it. So there's a whole bunch of different uh, variables. However, if you're under a county system and all of the, the ambulances have a cost factor to dispatch as a whole, then each of the ambulances are have to carve out the percentage of what the costs are. You know, so if, if you got 50,000 total dispatches for ambulance through the PSAP for the public service access point, and yours are 10,000, then obviously one fifth is your cost to operate and share of that, uh, of that dispatch system. Thank you. All right, Chuck, you've got a couple of questions on there. If you just want to type them back, I think that would probably be a better way to handle it. Yeah, but, we'll do uh, we're going to move on here, and thank you, Chuck, for that information. I think that's valuable. It surely heightens our, all of our awareness uh, and the importance behind doing this, and I agree with you. Um, I think that uh, as much as this is a challenging and tedious task, it's one that hopefully will benefit us in the long run, so thank you again. Um, moving on to uh, the No Surprises Act, and I know our ground friends who are, excuse me, our air friends who are joining us today are acutely underlying bold print aware of the NSA. However, maybe some of you joining us from the ground side may not understand its implications and what is actually going on with this. So I'm going to turn this over to Ed Marasco. For those of the you for those of you that don't know Ed, um, Ed has been involved in the air medical market on multiple committees, both uh, regionally, statewide, nationally, and he's been very, very close to the No Surprises Act as it began. Um, so I'm going to turn this over to Ed. Um, Heidi, who's been involved from the standpoint of working with our clients on uh, the process overall, is here to help with questions that may come in. So again, uh, please feel free to ask questions as we go on. So with that, uh, Ed, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. And uh, great job, Chuck. That's that's the topic that... Uh... Um, you know, a lot of folks are trying to get their arms around the cost data reporting. And we'll talk a little bit about the future of cost data reporting on the air medical side as well, which is coming down the pipe at us. Um, as Gary mentioned, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the No Surprises Act today. And, and I'm joined this afternoon by Heidi Campbell, who's uh, one of our senior staff members. And, and unfortunately, um, Heidi's lived this nightmare since uh, back in 2020. Um, and we, we meet a couple of times a week, our No Surprises Task Force to try and stay ahead of the curve um, when, uh, when it comes to uh, the NSA. The material we're gonna share with you today has been assembled by a whole team of people from QMC, not just the two of us, but it includes our operations group, our compliance team. Um, we've got regulatory folks out there and members of our executive leadership team. And we we've have been following the No Surprises Act since well before the act was passed in late 2020. The run up to this was over multiple years and there were multiple versions and gyrations of, um, of the legislation before it actually uh, made it into law. What we wanted to review with you today is a little bit of the background and key provisions of the current No Surprises Act as it exists today. Talk a little bit about um, what we've learned over the last couple of years on the air medical side with respect to the NSA, um, and then focus 
really quite a bit on on why is this coming um, at our ground ambulance clients and all of you out there in the ground ambulance world and trying to apply some of our experience uh, from the air side to what we think the impact will be and the implications will be on the ground side. And then, excuse me, what are the things that that you all as ground ambulance providers should be looking at next? Um, and so uh, a lot of information to get through. And as Gary said, we'll we'll try and uh, also answer as many questions as we can uh, as we get down to the end. So the No Surprises Act passed as a part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, H.R. 33, which was actually enacted prior to uh, President Trump leaving office on December 27th of 2020. And the main focus of the legislation was what we call balance bills. And so for those of you who've been around for a while, um, you, you're probably aware that in many cases, if you're an out-of-network provider, which means you don't have a contract with a health plan, um, you're able to, or you historically have been able to bill the differences between your bill charges and what the health plan has decided relatively arbitrarily to pay you, um, unless it was prohibited by some state law. We'll talk about that in a, in a couple of minutes. So the difference between what you got paid and what your charge was, that amount in between, when you pass that on to the patient, that's called a balanced bill. And healthcare providers, not just in the, in the ground and air ambulance world, hospitals, doctor practices have been doing this for decades, right? It's, it's a part of um, the strategy and the financial performance of uh, healthcare delivery organizations. A surprise medical bill is simply the term that's been used to describe a balanced bill that the patient received unexpectedly. And so, the best example of this, and probably the real, um, um, you know, the real accelerant in this process, is the typical emergency department scenario. Someone feels bad, they call you, they get taken to the emergency department. When they arrive at the emergency department, they go to the local hospital that's in network, you know, where they have their health insurance or that's affiliated with their health insurance. So when they arrive at the hospital. They figure, okay, I'm at XYZ Hospital. It's in network with my, um, with my health insurance because I've been there for other things in the past. And so I'm good. I'm going to just be responsible for the normal cost sharing or out-of-pocket um, sort of copay. And then they go through their episode, and a month later, they get a bill from the hospital. Of course, it is in network, and it has all the attributes of being an in-network relationship. But then a week later, they get a bill from the emergency physician group, which is separate from the hospital. And that group is not in network with their health insurance. And they now are responsible for a ginormous bill um, that goes well beyond what the insurance allowable is. So they're starting to get bills for the difference, that balance bill portion. So that's, in essence, that's the most common scenario of a surprise medical bill um, in our world. There's plenty of other examples as well, but that's the most common one. And that really became the lightning rod for the passage of the No Surprises Act. Now, one of the odd things about this piece of legislation and all the regulations is um, uh, the responsibility for development and enforcement of the regulations rests with three different agencies. We, we refer to them as the tri-agencies these days. Um, it's not a term of endearment, by the way. Um, and those three agencies include the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor and the Department of Treasury. So one of the complicated factors of managing through the NSA is there are three different agencies that we've got to deal with and educate about the challenges. So that's been a little bit um, 
of a difficult pill to swallow. And, and again, has made it complicated for us to do the normal exchange that we would have in the regulatory process. Um, the No Surprises Act applies to patients who get medical coverage through their employer. Typically, um, it could be a multi-employer plan, could be through the federal marketplace, could be through a state-based marketplace, um, um, or if they purchased coverage directly through a, um, a health insurance plan directly um, with a particular health plan. The NSA does not apply to patients who have coverage through programs that are associated with government um, types of insurance. So Medicare, Medicaid, Indian Health Service, Veteran Affairs, Healthcare, TRICARE, um, those are all excluded. And the, really, the reason for that is we're already mandatorily, mandatorily um, in network. So as you know, when you have a Medicare patient that you transport, we bill the Medicare fee schedule, we bill our charges, we get paid the Medicare fee schedule minus 20% from, from Medicare, and then that 20% goes off to the patient, which is a required copay. So those dollar amounts are already prescribed for us. That's why the NSA really doesn't apply. And of course, um, the NSA went live on January 1st of 2022. Um, and as I said, um, Heidi and company and many of the team members here at QuickMed have been uh, living that nightmare ever since. So um, what are the key provisions of the act and the associated regulations? Well, first of all, we mentioned this, the balance billing prohibition. We're not allowed to balance bill patients for services provided in out of network situations anymore. And that may seem pretty straightforward to you, but it has added on the, on the air side a layer of complication. So for example, um, it's not always the balance billing amount, but sometimes a denial of the claim or a rejection of the claim. So in the old days, the strategy that we often used was we would work with patients and families to help apply pressure to the health plans to get them to respond to us. Now patients and families don't have a, a dog in that fight because they're not on the hook for a balanced bill. So it's a lot different to get a patient or a family member engaged when they know they have no risk. They've been educated about the law. They're not getting a bill from us. Sometimes when you send those balanced bills out, the patient will call the billing office and say, hey, I got this bill. I, you know, I, my insurance company paid $500. The total bill was $1,000. You're asking me to pay another $500. Why is that? Well, it's because you're out of network. But I tell you what, the insurance company really should pay an additional amount. You have the ability as the patient to appeal that. And so when they had some skin in the game, they would sometimes work with us, oftentimes work with us to assist. That particular piece has gone away as a part of um, the regulation. There's also a cost-sharing provision that's designed to reduce system costs, and, and that's not really salient so much other than to say that the cost-sharing amount for out-of-network services, this is the amount the patient has to pay, is limited to what the in-network rates are. So again, it reduces the burden on the patient by design. And a lot of us who've been around healthcare for a while, um, appreciate the fact that um, it does get patients out of the middle a bit. There's also a provision that requires health plans to include coverage for emergency services. Um, that was the one silver lining um, in this whole cloud. And then um, Gary alluded to it, and we're gonna dive into this a little bit deeper in the next couple of slides, but the NSA provides for a dispute resolution process to settle disagreements between providers and suppliers and health plans related to payment and these regulations um, provide additional, uh, the regulations provide additional detail regarding what factors the IDR 
process is supposed to take into account. So this is really part of the meat and potatoes of the No Surprises Act. There's also um, um, some notice things that don't really apply as much in our world, more hospital oriented, but there's also a price transparency provision. And this is in the non-emergency transport situation primarily. There is a requirement for non-emergency services for providers and suppliers to give what's called a good faith estimate. So again, this hasn't been a huge impact on the air medical transport side. A little bit, if you operate a fixed wing program and you provide kind of semi-elected transport, but most of the rotor wing operations are used in emergent situations. This is, however, something that could be a real fly in the ointment on the ground ambulance side. Many of you, in addition to responding to 911 calls, provide some level of non-emergency transport, discharging people from hospitals, things of that nature. And so this price transparency provision, if it translates from the, the original No Surprises Act that focused on air into the ground ambulance regulations that we have to live with moving forward, it, it's pretty onerous. You've got to provide a written cost estimate to patients and it has to be in a manner and format that can be acknowledged, that the receipt of which can be acknowledged. So it's not like a phone call where Aunt Minnie calls you up or her family says, hey, I've got to get discharged home next Friday from the hospital. Um, this, may, this may be something that's not covered. I need to know how much. You can't just give that information over the phone. The current price tra transparency rules require something that is um, um, more formal than that. So keep that in the back of your mind. And of course, um, as Chuck just spent some time elaborating on, the ground ambulance world has already been living with um, the cost data reporting requirements, but the NSA did include a provision to extend those same requirements to the air medical transport industry. And that process is in the very early stages of unfolding. So what have we learned um, during our couple of years now, a year and a half or so of experience with um, the, the NSA that can translate to the ground side? Well, first of all, um, the federal government, Congress, and the regulatory agencies completely missed the boat when it came to what the NSA was going to mean for health plan behavior. The original intent of the NSA was to drive both health plans and providers to aggressively seek in-network relationships. Because, of course, if, you're, if we're all participating providers, the financial impact of the patients is limited to just the normal cost sharing, right? If we're all in-network, the health plan is going to pay us, and we're only going to bill the patient the prescribed copay or deductible, whatever would apply in those circumstances. So the concept was if we put this law into, into effect and, and we make it hard, we force these players to come together and we have a third-party arbitrator, it's going to eventually cause them to come together and develop in-network relationships. Well, um, unfortunately, the NSA has emboldened the health plans, and, and not only are they less inclined to seek in-network relationships with air medical transport providers, but there are actually situations where there are existing in-network relationships that have been in place for multiple years that now the health plans are trying to get out of or canceling. So actually it's had the exact opposite effect. So again, we'll talk a little bit about what this means for the ground side in a couple of slides. The other key piece of, the, of um, what we've learned is that what's called a QPA or qualifying payment amount. And that really is used to drive what the ultimate payment level is gonna be. It's one of the factors 
that um, uh, determines what health plans are supposed to pay us on the front end. And it's also one of the key factors that's used on the back end in the independent dispute resolution process to determine what we ultimately could get paid if we're successful in appealing. Unfortunately, the computation of that qualifying payment amount um, is a black box. It's only something the health plans can compute because they have the historical in-network data. It's, and there's a, some definitions in the regulations that talk about the median in-network rate. And that's information that we typically don't have as providers. The health plans sort of are the keepers of all that information. So unfortunately, that's a real disadvantage for those of us who are trying to figure out strategically how to maneuver these shark-infested waters. The other real challenge that we have is the process itself. And I can, I can hear Heidi groaning already um, as we begin to talk about this. So there's some very specific prescribed processes that the No Surprises Act overlays on the normal interactions that we have with health plans. There is an open negotiation process that was designed to encourage the parties to convene and work out their differences before going to the more formal IDR process. There's a specific timeline for that. And you can circumvent it, it's 30 days. So the clock starts ticking and we've got 30 days to have these conversations with the health plan to try and come up with an agreement on what they're gonna pay. The reality is in our experience, the health plans are rarely engaged actively in open negotiations and it's largely a waste of time. It's just another delay tactic. We're waiting another 30 days to get closer to a final resolution to get our claims paid. The other part of the process, which really is, has been um, um, the, the major sort of uh, challenge is this independent dispute resolution process. It's very labor intensive and it, it involves detailed submissions to an independent third party that will ultimately determine what the payment should be. The tri-agencies early on in this process reported that um, in the first three months of the, of the initial year, which was 2022, there were more IDR requests filed than they projected for the entire first year of the law being in effect. So there's not enough IDR entities to process these claims. There are way more claims coming through and to add insult to injury, and this is something we have to watch very closely on the ground side because of the massive volume. And think about it, at QuickMed, we process about 1.3 million uh, medical transport claims a year. About 50,000 of those are air medical claims. And this process has set us on our ear when it comes to the number of man hours that are involved. Not only that, but some bright person in the hierarchy decided to put out a regulation clarification. I think it was designed to cover a different issue, not transport. But now, we have to file not one, but two IDRs for every claim. We have to file a separate claim for the base rate and the loaded mile rate for each one of these disputes that we have. So we're doing twice as much work. The IDR entities are processing twice as many requests to adjudicate these things, and, and they're already way behind. So it's been um, um, a, a tremendous burden on everybody involved. It's created an additional workflow for our teams resulting, as I mentioned, in thousands of extra man hours to carry out the process because there's very tight timelines and we have to track these things in, in terms of days and weeks to make sure that we're not missing deadlines. But there's also a great deal of extra work on the part of our client partners, so you all out there who are operating ambulance services, because in order to apply 
into the IDR process, we've got to submit documentation. Part of that documentation is things like, what are the special capabilities of your agency? What special equipment do you have? Are there special equipment on your vehicles? Do you, um, do you carry certain medical devices? Um, do you do special training with your staff? Some of those things can be written up in advance and put in the hopper, so to speak. And so when Heidi and her team are submitting these IDR requests, some of that information is relatively consistent. Um, and we can, we can pull it out and, and sort of cut and paste and put it back in. But there's also an element of that justification for the higher level of reimbursement that is patient and situation specific. So we can't just put it in the hopper. Someone has to write up that very specific patient encounter and why on that specific encounter, what was used, what skills were brought to bear, what services were provided for that particular encounter that are gonna cause um, the IDR entity to agree they should pay the higher amount that we're asking for as opposed to the lower amount that the health plan is paid. And that is incredibly onerous for everybody involved. Um, there's a ton of financial implications. Um, as Heidi will tell you, we have won our fair share of independent dispute resolutions, but there are quite a few of those that were won months and months ago, and our clients have not yet been paid. And there are really no teeth in the law or in the regulation. There's a specific prescribed amount of time, and it's limited. I think, Heidi, it might be a month or something like that. The, the IDR entities or, or um, services that were performed in the first quarter of 22, calendar year 2022, that we got paid, let's say it was a $40,000 air medical bill. They maybe paid $6,000 to our client. We've worked all the way through the open negotiation process. We applied for IDR. We paid money. There's a cost associated with going through the IDR process. Our client paid money to participate in the process. We submitted all the information. It went on hold because the IDR entities are overwhelmed. And maybe it didn't, we weren't able to actually get into the IDR process until late in the fall, November. And then we went through the process. We finally got a favorable outcome by February 1st of 2023. And here we are in May and no check for that balance has been issued yet to our clients. So there are tremendous financial implications. And if you multiply that, again, 50,000 air medical claims versus 1.3 million ground claims, the order of magnitude is staggering. And I can't imagine that the IDR process is gonna be any better, any more efficient when we start overlaying the number of claims we're talking about. Um, there's also, I mentioned a bunch of bureaucracy and, and, and workload um, issues. And the reality is, this is the end of the road. There is no higher court to appeal to. So what's that mean for the ground ambulance world? Well, look, you know, the challenges we face these days in the ground ambulance world are unlike, you know, those we've encountered ever before, at least in all the years that I've been around. And I, I like to believe there's always hope. Um, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And, you know, from time to time, I do have that feeling that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Unfortunately, folks, not to be dramatic about it, but that light is a train and it's called the NSA. And there are a whole bunch of folks who are already on board that train that's coming down the tracks at us. Patients are on board, patient advocacy groups are on board, government entities cross the landscape from federal to state um, and the health plans themselves all think this thing has been very successful. And they're not appreciating the amount of pain it's created for those of us who are involved in the industry. So why is it going to apply to ground? Um, 
you know, one of the challenges is medical debt is still one of the largest um, causes of bankruptcies in the United States today. So even though we've solved some of this balance billing stuff, there's still a ton of it out there. Um, the implication for patients are very, very favorable. It gets them out of the middle. And as I mentioned in the last slide, the perception of the current process is that it's been really successful. It's helped patients. Providers seem to be adapting. I would argue that there have been um, at least a dozen base closures in the air medical industry since this thing um, came into effect. There's likely to be more, um, um, but there's a sense that the providers are adapting to it. Health plans certainly aren't complaining because they're holding on to our money for a longer period of time. Um, it's supposed to drive in network consideration. The interesting thing here is the health plans hold the keys to the kingdom. So where they're interested and they can get a really good rate, they're proceeding and having those discussions where the rates aren't as favorable, where, where they're getting, having a harder time in marketplaces where maybe there's some negotiating power on the provider side, they're simply choosing not to go in network and causing us to have to go through the process. And then there's this perception um, that um, the complaint process, which has been in place for the NSA, is working well. And I had a dispute on the ground ambulance patient billing advisory. Some of you I know who are on the call today were also on that a couple of weeks ago. And I was having a dispute in the chat with one of the presenters who was saying that the complaint process has actually operated pretty well and very efficient. And, and he, what he meant to say was the one for the patients, but the one for providers is a nightmare. And as Heidi can tell you as well, you know, we submitted in, um, in the fall of 2020, when the regs came out, we submitted a question about a process gap. There was the inability to sort of distinguish between individual claims. We submitted a question in the fall of 20. And I put a read receipt on it because I had called the, the helpline and they said, well, you have to do, that's pretty complicated. You have to do that in writing. I put a read receipt on the email and the email wasn't even opened until April of 22. Or I'm sorry, April of 21. And we had already started down the pipe in the process. So, you know, they're not exactly getting through these complaints in a very efficient fashion. Um, I know we're long on time. Uh, Gary, I'm going to, I'm going to zip through. I have a couple more slides zip through and try and answer some questions. Um, this is an important one. Some of you may not realize there are already 10 states with, with balanced billing protections in place. So the states that are identified here in red already have some level of safety and protection against balanced bills for healthcare delivery. And in the case of Ohio and Vermont, which are on this list, their particular protection applies to emergency situations only, but the other eight states applies in a broader sense. So what's this going to mean for the ground side? Well, look, in the most simplest terms, um, payment is going to be a challenge. The initial payments have gone down. Those initial payments that health plans are paying up front. Um, um, you know, the ultimate payment is going to go down because the, the, um, the sort of provisions of the qualifying payment amount are based on the median in-network rate, not out-of-network rate. So, and we did some analysis with our air medical clients. You know, prior to the NSA, we would get paid a, an interim amount by the health plan, and then we would bill the patients for the balance. Now, oftentimes our clients would have charity care policies and things of that nature. They would do um, prompt pay discounts and things. So we rarely got all of our money, but we often got a fair amount between what the patient paid and, um, and what the health plan paid. And sometimes the patients helped us appeal so we even got more money from the health plan than they initially paid. And those numbers were in ranges in the 90% range. Um, these days, 
that's not there anymore because we're not allowed to bill the patients and we're fighting with the health plans to get them to pay more than that initial payment. And it's generally not coming out as favorably with some exceptions um, in the ultimate total payment. And then of course, I mentioned the payment delays. Secondarily, all the administrative burden, both for the RCM process, um, but also on the providers themselves, the organizations. Um, many of our client partners have people engaged full-time writing up the clinical scenarios for these IDR submissions. And then of course, um, if you really are feeling like you want to go in network, having payer conversations is also can be a full-time job. And whether you use your RCM partner like us to help you with that, but there's still someone on your organization that has to carry the water on that. So the administrative burden has gone way up. And I mentioned um, there are fees to participate in the process. You submit a fee to actually apply to get into the IDR process. And then if you are going through the IDR process itself, there's a fee that goes to the IDR entity. If you win, you get that second fee back. If you lose, it's gone. So in addition to getting a lousy payment on your transport and not getting any additional payment, you'll also lose the fees that you've submitted. So it ends up being sort of a triple whammy um, if you're not successful in the IDR process. Okay, so what's next? Um, you know, there's ongoing efforts on the air medical side. We're tracking this very closely and we're trying to raise issues in the air medical process to the tri-agencies. And there's also been lots of conversations with Congress about this. You may have heard there have been several lawsuits that have provided some relief to the provider and supplier side, but those discussions and activities are ongoing. That little group called the Ground Ambulance Patient Billing Advisory Committee finally convened. It was supposed to convene more than a year ago. It was scheduled to meet in January or February. It was canceled abruptly at the last minute. Finally, the week before last, met for the first time, and they've got a six-month window to issue a report. And the primary function of this committee is to make recommendations with respect to how to, how to apply those surprise and balance billing protections to the ground ambulance world. So again, this, this train is on the tracks and it's heading toward us. So um, ultimately what will happen is recommendations will come out of the GAPB. That'll cause promulgation of some regulations by the tri-agencies. And then we'll have to adapt to whatever that new reality is, all the processes, all the tracking and things um, that we talked about ever so briefly here today. So I guess the message from my standpoint at this point is um, that we really need to be diligent about this. And now's the time for you to get your voice if you're a ground ambulance provider and reach out to those channels that you have to try and balance the playing field a little bit. And I put this slide up here. This is a slide somebody shared during the Ground Ambulance Patient Billing Advisory Committee. There are 10, the top 10 largest health plans in the United States, and here they are listed in order. These 10 health plans alone control more than 52% of the market. They have more than 52% of the covered lives. So these 10 players are driving that policy. They're, their lobbying efforts, their education efforts in the community, their messaging, and they carry a lot more weight and have a lot more resources than think about the ground ambulance industry. There's no single ground ambulance entity that controls even a single percent of the marketplace nationwide. And here 10 control more than 50% of the market. Um, with that, um, Gary, I'll, let me stop and see. Heidi, if you want to add anything um, or if there are any comments or questions, we'll go to the order again. Apologize for going over a couple of minutes here. 
I just have a question, Ed. I'll throw it out to probably you or Heidi. Um, and I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Heidi, when you began, and I know you're very close to this process, did you perceive it to be as cumbersome as it has turned out to be here in 2023? And second part of that question is, where are your energies each day being devoted? It, I know it's the IDR process, but within that process, where are you? What's what seems to be the the big hurdle that you have to get over with this um, through the course of your days? Again, since you're so close to it. Thanks, Gary. Um, it, this has taken over my life, <laughs> as well as many many other people. Um, Day-to-day -day process is just really tracking and, and knowing the dates, like Ed said. I mean, the tracking of the business days and the requirements for each and every claim is, it's it's a job. Um, and it, it's evolving. You know, every day something can change. You know, one entity reads things you know into the into the regulation one way and another's not we're we're working with entities they're taking questions back to CMS to get um clear definition and um I think right now we are building relationships within some of these entities that that I think can help us through this process but it is it is a big, big process. And like I said, it is all date driven and it, it, it's key. We, we just have to stay on it. Very challenging. And it's surprising to me as I go out and talk to our clients, uh, primarily the ground side, um, you know, this, Ed, you summarized it well, that light at the end of the tunnel was a, is the NSA train coming towards us. And I think we as an industry, especially the ground industry, need to keep our um, our ear close to the track, if you will, because um, I'm very surprised how many folks that I speak to uh, with both very large and, and even smaller services. Um, and I'm not trying to be funny here. When I ask them if they know about the NSA, they I've had responses like, yes, the National Security Agency. And I say that not to be not to be funny. Um, only to say that we as an industry need to pay very, very close attention to this. On one hand, we've got hopefully the cost data folks that may put money in more money in our pocket. On the other hand, we've got the NSA that's going to hold our money for maybe even longer or end up with less. So we've got two combatants out there that are almost, you know, it's a perfect storm. They're colliding here at the same time. And if we don't pay attention to that through your state associations and the American Ambulance Associations and just live in our own communities, someday we're going to wake up and have a big surprise on our hands. So uh, if, if anything today, we've hopefully heightened your awareness to this, get really into it. There's a lot of reading online. There's a lot of uh, information out there through, your, um, through the American Ambulance Association. Uh, pay attention. Uh, we're seeing ambulance services uh, close within our own client group um, that we would never thought closed right now. And imagine what can happen um, and if this in, it continues to, to steamroll and 
can get larger as it is. So where does Gary, uh, Jacob, Jacob is asking a question and it ties right into what we just talked about. Um, Ed or Heidi, Jacob is asking, have we seen any insurance plans pushing out any air medical providers yet? Uh, and then uh, he says, like they did for physician groups in Texas, would you anticipate that this risk is present for ground providers? And I think Gary, you kind of just answered that, but specifically, you know, the crystal ball, uh, like you said, we're already seeing that. Um, Ed, Heidi, can you weigh in specifically on this question? Um, uh, we hope not, but. Yeah, the answer, the answer, Chuck, is yes. Um, and in fact, um, we've, and I alluded to this a little bit in the presentation, but we've seen um, air medical providers that have had longstanding multiple year agreements um, with health plans get canceled. And we had recently, um, right at the beginning of the NSA, so just as the NSA was being passed and the regulations were being promulgated, one of our hospital-based clients who is in network with their Blue Cross, the, the state Blue Cross plan, which is also, by the way, just for yucks, is one of those top 10, one of the largest in the country, their state Blue Cross plan. They were in network as a hospital, in network with their physician group. They had a longstanding ground ambulance operation that was in network. And when they started a new air medical transport program, they went in good faith to negotiate with the Blue Cross plan. And it took in excess of two years to get an in-network agreement. And the first offers were pennies on a dollar. Um, so it was staggering. And again, a longstanding relationship, history of being in-network and that particular plan because they knew what was coming um, and they knew it was going to negatively impact the reimbursement on the air medical side, elected to hold strong um, until finally, um, I think they, they the negotiations got a little more dicey. So we're seeing some of that. Um, um, we're also seeing um, just no phone calls back. There are there are um, air medical providers that are trying to have honest conversations um, and and can't. Now there are some where there in certain marketplaces there there are things happening that are positive. You know there are health plans and air medical providers that are that are reaching striking reasonable agreements. So I don't want you to think it's all one sided, but we've certainly seen a lot more. Um, in the other direction as we have where there's been really good agreements reached and and then network relationships evolved. And I can add extending the olive branch and notating those phone calls to become, you know, to have the conversations through the IDR process is very helpful when we can say we've contacted a certain payer, you know, multiple times with no response. It, it holds a lot of weight, so. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's part of that administrative burden we were talking about. You know, if you if you are reaching out to the health plans in your area, so if you're a ground ambulance service, once this thing, you know, once the regulations come out um, and you and you reach out to your local Blue Cross and United Healthcare and Aetna and all the other health plans and you try and seek an in-network relationship and you don't get any response back, you have to document that because when we submit the IDR to the IDR entities for individual cases, that's part of that portfolio that goes in. And that's one of the very specific factors in the current NSA. We don't know if all these regs are gonna translate exactly the same way to the ground ambulance version of this, but that's one of those factors that the IDR entities are supposed to look at when they decide whether or not to take our number or the other guy's number, the health plan's number. By the way, we didn't talk about this. Those of you who are on the air side know this, but this is a Gary will love this. This is a baseball style arbitration, which means 
The health plan submits a number. Generally, it's the number that they paid us on an interim basis, right? And then we have to come up with a number as the provider and submit that number. It's not a compromise. They don't take 50, the, the spot 50% in the middle or halfway in the middle. It's one number or the other. So there's a lot of strategy involved in what number you select. Because if you shoot too high and you lose that IDR, you know, that again, I mentioned, you don't get any more payment. You've, you've lost your fees for the IDR process and you've lost the registration fees anyway. So not only is it costing you more money, but you're not getting any more money. So you've got to be realistic in that number and you have to have a good case. And that tracking all those conversations, as Heidi pointed out, is key in addition to all the documentation about your crews and your capability and all that other stuff. So it's, it's a big task. There's a lot of effort that happens on both sides, both on our side and on the client side. And we have an attendee that just uh, just made a comment, you know, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, plan in their area already are attacking the ground legs for fixed wing trips, trying to indicate that they already fall under the NSA because they are ground legs associated with an air transport. Can you speak to that quickly? Yes, I can. And, and it's exactly right. It's happened. And, and so and Heidi and her team have raised this issue. And we had a we had an issue very early on in Western Pennsylvania with Highmark which was also on that list of top 10. Um, and we actually raised the issue. We went to Highmark and said, you know, the NSA doesn't apply to ground. And, uh, and they did some homework on their side to their credit. Um, and they said, you're right. It was a computer glitch. We were applying all of our NSA standards for all the hospitals and doctors and air medical providers. And somehow this thing got extended to ground. But since then, what I will tell you is we have heard from health plans that they believe that the NSA does apply. And so QuickMed was invited to present at the Ground Ambulance Patient Billing Advisory Committee. And when um, the representative from the National Association of Health Plans, health insurance plans presented their perspective about the NSA and about why it should be extended to ground all these things, I did ask the question. And I said to the AHIP representative, Everybody here, including the tri-agencies, has said that this does not currently apply to ground. That's why we're having these meetings to try and figure out how to apply to ground. Are you willing to issue guidance to your members, much like the AAA or the Association of Air Medical Services or other professional associations on the provider side will do to their members to say, this, is, this applies or doesn't apply? Are you willing to issue um, direction to your members? And he said two things that were alarming. One is, we don't issue that kind of guidance to our members, which I find interesting because almost every other professional association, whether it's a quality of care issue, whatever it is, will issue guidance and direction. And the second thing he said is many of our members do believe that it does apply in certain circumstances. And to that, nobody on the administrative side, nobody on the tri-agency side, all of which were on the call, disputed it. So we're in a conundrum and again, what's our recourse? If someone takes a ground ambulance claim and says this is subject to the NSA, we have to file a complaint through the complaint portal. And maybe four months later, somebody's actually going to read that and get back to us. And that's the reality of the world we're living in right now. And I, again, Heidi, my deepest sympathies. When we talk all the time, I, you're always looking for a good, a good answer and a good outcome. And really, there's not much good news. Uh, over the last two years. We've had some wins, but they've been very few and far between. So Ed, real quick, any advice 
to the attendee who asked the question, do you feel that we could balance bill those patients on the ground portion or should we just sit tight? If, if the health plan is claiming that it is subject to the NSA, then I would not balance bill the patient. I would, I would file a complaint. Um, we have to get those complaints recorded. If you have, if, if you are working through your state association, Gary mentioned it, or if you're a member of the AAA, you need to make sure you share this with your association so they can take it to Capitol Hill. There's been a lot of meetings with Congress. You know, one of the things, there was a, a lawsuit um, in Texas that was won by the provider side. There've been a couple that have been won, but there was one specific to air medical transport that was won. And one of the opinions that the judge, one of the aspects of the opinion the judge wrote that was very important was, that clearly the regulations that were promulgated by the tri-agencies overstepped and misinterpreted congressional intent on what this was supposed to be. And so I believe that this is that the ground ambulance question is clearly a case where Congress did not mean for this to apply to ground ambulance services, the original NSA, which is why they put the ground ambulance patient billing advisory committee in the act, because they knew it was gonna, it should come later. It should be studied, and there should be specific recommendations as to how to solve this problem on the ground ambulance side. So clearly, it's an overreach. Clearly, it's outside of congressional intent. And one of the ways to get this fixed is to make sure you're going to your legislator through your state associations and the AAA and other professional associations that you belong to and making everyone on Capitol Hill aware that this is happening and also sharing with them the impact that it could have on your organization. Those are very important things because if there's not an ambulance, when somebody calls 911, Congress is gonna hear about that. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a long way to wait until that happens and all of us don't wanna leave our, our communities uncovered in order to make a point, but they need to understand that if this doesn't get fixed and if the new piece of it is not implemented in the right way, that could very well be the outcome. Absolutely. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Heidi and Ed. We appreciate your insight into this matter. Uh, very concerning, kind of makes my stomach churn, to be honest with you, um, having been in this industry for so many years. But I uh, thank you for bringing it to our attention. And again, I think the, uh, the operative word here is we all need to be more vigilant. We need to pay attention and we need to stay on top of it. As Ed said, talk to our legislators, our state and uh, national associations and be part of be part of the solution uh not just sit there and be complacent and see what happens because that's a that's a bad approach it's a bad approach so i know we've gone over um but i wanted to thank all of you for attending today we hope you found uh, today's session helpful and informative i did have a couple questions if we have recorded the session and we have um Give us a few days to make it look a little nicer and edit it, and we'd be glad to provide anybody who uh, writes us uh, the link. And we will also be making this available um, on our podcast channel, which is a very active channel. So uh, feel free to, to take in uh, bits, pieces, or all of it at some point in the future. Uh, my thanks to Chuck Humphrey, Ed Marasco, and Heidi Campbell. And thanks, of course, to all of you for joining in uh, today. Uh, we hope you have a great weekend. We hope the sun is shining where you are. Uh, it's, it's shining in Pittsburgh. It's shining where Ed is. I know that. And uh, we hope you guys have a great weekend. And to all the moms out there, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank have a great everybody. day. And hey, be safe, safe out, out there. there.